Well, good morning. If you made it here via car or boat, uh, different people are experiencing flooding. Unfortunately, the Chavezes, uh, uh, their house is flooded this morning. I know Lungis, their bottom floor is flooded. So grace and peace to you if your house is flooded. I'm sorry to hear about that. And you might come home to find it, but hopefully not. Um, welcome this morning. I hope that you were blessed this week as you followed the Lord, enjoyed Him in the difficult obediences. Um, and this week, we're going to continue in our sermon series on Exodus. My name is Riley, uh, church planning resident here, and you get me two weeks in a row this time because everyone else is on holidays. Um, so let's go to Exodus chapter 5, please. Exodus chapter 5. I'm actually, again, I'm not going to read it out first. We're going to read it as we go through. Um, but I just want you to get there, get it ready. Put your phone on flight mode so you're not distracted. Uh, and so you can be ready to hear God's word. Not my voice, but God's word is what we're here for. Uh, would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you by that name, Father, that we are your children because you sent your Son to die for us. Thank you. Father, as we come before your word, your holy, authoritative word, may you preach to us, may you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, may you change our hearts and our minds to believe and to live it out. Lord, may you be glorified, may you be enjoyed, may you be seen, and may you give us faith to live for you as a result of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great book or actually, I haven't read the book, so I can't tell you if it's a great book. I assume it's a great book because it's written by Paul Tripp, and he's the Pope of modern Christian books. But Paul Tripp wrote a great title of a book called What Did You Expect? What Did You Expect? It's actually a book on marriage, and it's a great little phrase because it brings up one of the most important kind of aspects of marriage, which is expectations. Uh, and he says at the beginning of the book that the book is sort of written because most people enter marriage with this idea that I love this person, they love me, and everything's going to be great. Um, and then he counts, he's a counselor and a pastor, and he's just sat face-to-face with so many people that had unrealistic expectations, and now five, ten years later into their marriage, they're feeling disappointment, frustration, um, unexpected you know, annoyance at what's going on in their marriage. And he says this, unrealistic expectations always result in disappointment. Uh, It's a good little line. And and it's not just true for marriage. It's true for parenting. It's true uh, for work. When you take a job and you think it's going to be like this, and it turns out like that, or you start going to school or whatever it is, you take a new HSC subject. Some of you year 12 people are about to do that or going into year 11 next year, you think this is going to be the greatest subject, and then you start doing it and realize it's not. Um, Unrealistic expectations always result in disappointment. Um, It's not just the Pope, Paul Tripp, who says that. Chris Martin, the other Pope of our generation, said this, Nobody said it was easy. It's such a shame for us to part. Nobody said it was easy. No one ever said it would be so hard. Picking up on that great song, Coldplay, The Scientist, where he's talking about breaking up and nobody said it would be easy, but he didn't realize how hard it really would be to be in relationship. Um, And last week we spoke about the Israelites that 
we kind of have this rocky montage scene. So they go from Moses has this interaction with God, lots of conversation, and then finally he obeys the Lord and he leaves Midian and starts heading to Egypt. And we learned, as Andrew reminded us earlier, that the point of that passage was to teach us that following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. And God tells Moses that um, not only is he going to be Yeah, God tells Moses, not only is he going to have to go into Pharaoh's court and ask that Israel would be set free, but it won't actually work. Uh, That God is actually going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then Moses, you know, had this moment. We won't go into it now. The circumcision moment, it's an odd moment, but we see the difficulty of obedience and disobedience. And then we kind of get to the climactic point in the montage scene. Uh, It's sort of seven scenes all come in. And then finally, Moses gets back to Egypt, meets with his brother Aaron, and they go to the elders of Israel. And Moses had predicted that the elders would not listen to him. Moses had predicted that they would reject him. He'd already been rejected once before, 40 years earlier. And when he gets there, we're told in the end of chapter 4 that the elders hear Moses, they listen, and they believe, and they worship the Lord. It's this climactic moment in the point of the narrative. It's looking all good. Everything is going forward. And then we get to chapter 5, and everything goes downhill very quickly. The message for this week, the big idea for this week, is this, if you want to write it down. Following our sovereign God is harder than expected. You see, God had prepared Moses. He told him, you're not going to come out of Egypt unless by a strong hand. He told him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But as we're going to see in this passage, even though he was warned, even though he knew it would be difficult obedience, when he came to live out that difficult obedience, it was harder than expected. The way we're going to go through this passage is I'm going to quickly go through, go point by point and look through the narrative. Um, And so point one will be harder than they expected. But then point two is going to be, how does this relate to us? And point two will be harder than we expected. And we're going to look at how do we live this life following Christ when it's harder than expected. So let's jump in and see what God has to say for us in the text. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. So this is point one, harder than they expected. And kind of the first scene, you could summarize verse 1 to 9, unexpected failure. Afterward, so after Moses and Aaron have just met with the Israelite elders in verse 31, and they all bow down, they worship, they believe the Lord, they're they're stoked. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. 
And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from or, and you make them rest from their burdens. So in this kind of first little section here, we see Moses and Aaron full of confidence, really. God has told them in chapter 3, verse 18, if you want to go back there, what to say. So if you look at 3, verse 18, it says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God has told them what to say, but they sort of enter Pharaoh's court a little bit more confident and triumphant than God had told them to enter. They come in, if you look at verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. It's very directive. Whereas in chapter 3, verse 18, it was a bit more conciliatory, good negotiation practice. Please may we go, hold a feast to the Lord in the wilderness. So they come in, you can see, they have this expectation We're going to come in. We've got God on our side. We're going to break through. We're going to conquer. We're going to get out of it. And then what does Pharaoh say? Who is this Lord? I do not know him. So they come back. If you look at verse 3, it actually is a little bit closer to chapter 3, verse 18. They kind of come in and they they start using the same language. Uh, They say, oh, God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go. So they, they kind of change their tact a little bit. And they're sort of on the back foot. But they have this unexpected failure. Pharaoh, even though they were told would reject them, actually did what God said he would do. In chapter 4, verse 21, it says that I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not let you go. And then lo and behold, what God said would happen, happened. And we see in Pharaoh this defiance of the Lord. This isn't just, well, you could, maybe it is just ignorance. If you look at verse 2, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Maybe it's ignorance, uh, but I think perhaps more it's arrogance. Because he goes on to say, I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is not just defying Aaron and Moses. Pharaoh is directly defying the God of the Hebrews. He's been given a divine directive, and he defiantly disobeys. He says this interesting phrase, I do not know the Lord. Most likely meaning, I don't have relationship with him. I don't have this connection with him. I don't know who he is. I don't follow him. And what we're actually going to see throughout the rest of the Exodus narrative is that sentence, that that statement, I don't know him, is going to change. Because throughout the whole series of plagues that's going to come, Pharaoh is going to slowly begin to know who the Lord is. In fact, it's repeated about eight or nine times throughout the next ten chapters that if you look at chapter 7, verse 17, it will be on the screen. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Or chapter 8, verse 10, tomorrow um, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Pharaoh comes in and he arrogance and defiance of the Lord. He doesn't know who he is, but he's going to get to know him pretty quickly and in a pretty devastating way. So Pharaoh comes up with a new plan. If you look at verse 6 through 9, and if you want to summarize these verses, you could do it like this with the words of Ligon Duncan. I think it's a good summary 
Pharaoh seeks to demoralize Israel and discredit Moses. Let's have a look. The same day, so this, this instantaneous nature about it, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. You can see Pharaoh's malevolence here. Not only is he going to reject the law, but he's now going to try and discredit Moses and demoralize the people. Oh, you think you're going to, you're going to get free from Egypt? Okay, well, now go and do everything that I was already enslaving you to do, and I'm not going to provide the necessary materials. See, brick-making is uh, a pretty insanely difficult task in the ancient world. It, you're in the desert, you're with hot kilns, and one of the things you need to make bricks is straw because it helps the, the water seep out of the bricks and stops breakages so that they don't crack open. Up to this point, the Israelites had been given the straw so they could meet their quota of bricks. But now Pharaoh's taking away that necessary component. He's going to see, he's going to really test their faith. Do they really think they're going to be set free? He's going to try and crush their spirit. So we see in this kind of first little section an unexpected failure. They come in bold and confident and they leave with a devastating loss. Uh, But before we move on, I just want to pause for a second with this idea of not knowing the Lord. Um, Because there's probably people here in this room, given the size and the number of the people here, who actually don't know the Lord, don't know who God is personally, don't love Him, don't have Jesus as your Savior. Um, The question I have for you is, who is your Lord? Uh, Because we all have some principle or some person that we follow, whether functionally or actually in a different religion, whether it be Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, whether it be secular atheism. We all have our lords, and you've probably brought some kind of lord with you today, whether in your mind or actually in your religious devotion. And I just want you to consider, as you look at Pharaoh, he doesn't know who the Lord is, yet... We're going to see later on in the book of Exodus, God will teach him who he is, and it's a disastrous way to learn. So I want to encourage you, if you're here and you don't yet know the Lord, don't do what Pharaoh did. Don't learn the way he learned. Start asking questions. Talk to me. Talk to someone on the team. Talk to someone who brought you. Begin that conversation so you can get to know him because he's worthy of knowing, and he's great. He's your father, and he wants you to know him rather than be against him. So we have the unexpected failure. Then we go to verse 10 to 14. We see unexpected hardship. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, so this is the Egyptian taskmasters, thus says Pharaoh. See that kind of similarity? Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. It's a competing claim. I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. 
The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you done all your task of making bricks today? And yes, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? You can see this urgent uh, and hatred of God's people that not only do they or- are they already enslaved, but now they have this incredible burden laid upon them. And the leaders of God's people receive beatings and they receive this torture. And we're going to see this probably goes on for a long period of time. So don't just imagine like Pharaoh, um, Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh, let my people go. He says no. So then they go and like one day they don't have straw. Then the next day they're going to go back to Pharaoh. It's probably a long period of time, day in, day out. They're going out. They're having to scatter all throughout the land to find enough straw to make these bricks. And when they don't, the bricks don't make their quota. So then their leaders get beaten. And the beating that they receive is probably not like a little tap with a wooden spoon. It's some form of harsh, you know, abusive beating. We need to kind of get a picture of how incredibly difficult this would have been. It it comes after 400 years of slavery already. And again, things have gotten worse. Imagine their failed expectation. They'd met with Moses and Aaron. They had this promise, deliverance is coming. And then it all gets turned so suddenly. They had these great expectations And you can imagine the disappointment and bitterness that would be setting in right now. But the point here, and we're going to see, it actually keeps on going, this description, but the point of outlining exactly what's happening here and perhaps the point of why the Lord made this happen is so that the Israelite people truly understand that they are in desperate need of salvation. It's not just a matter of, oh, we could be in Egypt or we could be set free. Their burden and their slavery is so intense that they are in desperate need of salvation. And that's true for all of us here today who are outside of Christ. Or for you, if you were once not a follower of Christ, now you are. You know we were in desperate need of salvation. For the pain and the torment of slavery does not compare at all with the pain and torment of wrath from God that is to come. So we have this picture of the desperate need of salvation. So where will this salvation come from? Where will God's people find deliverance? Where should they turn? If you were in a similar circumstance, where would you turn? Where would you go to? Well, let's have a look at verse 15 and see what happens. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. I'll read that again more slowly. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. It's interesting that so quickly, 
the Israelites have turned from crying out to the Lord, worshipping the Lord, rejoicing that salvation is coming. And at the first conflict, at the first difficulty, instead of turning to the Lord, they turn back to their other Lord, Pharaoh. They turn back to their slave driver. The one who's imprisoned them is their master. And notice three times in that section of two verses, they said, we your servants, we your servants, we your servants. God's people are always slow to learn lessons. And I think you and I probably would resonate to some degree with these Israelites that time and time again, even though we know we need to turn to the Lord, somehow we turn somewhere else. We turn to something or someone to be our master again. And we turn back as servants. And what's the result? Look at verse 17. But he, that is Pharaoh, said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Again, we're going to see this pattern time and time in Scripture that whenever you turn anywhere but the Lord, you don't get the deliverance that you need. So not only do the Israelite people have this changed expectation of deliverance, they go to, Mo, uh, they go to Pharaoh and they get a failure. And now look what they do. Look at verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So not only do they turn to Pharaoh instead of the Lord, then they turn their back on the one that they were just bowing down and worshipping with. Moses was bringing a great message of salvation, and at the first sight of trouble, they turn on their leaders. I praise God that you guys aren't like that in our church, that at the first sight of trouble, you're not calling out curses on Dave and Patrick and Brendan, the pastors. Uh, But it is a temptation. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, what happens when trouble comes? We blame someone else. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Serpent had no one else to blame, so I guess he had nowhere to go. But we have the same thing. When we are called into following God into difficult obediences, we all follow the same temptation. Say you heard a sermon and and then you go to put it into practice and you're like, well, that didn't work out how I planned. You could have a temptation to blame the Word of God or the preacher or even God himself. And that's what God's people do to Moses in this moment. They they curse him. They, They call the Lord down upon him. Now, there is grace. They actually call the Lord down upon him. Uh, So they actually are knowing the Lord. They're kind of recognizing that God's involved in this. But still, they're far from being perfected. But hopefully, maybe, maybe Moses then, maybe Moses has got it all together. Moses, the one who knows. Moses had the face-to-face meeting with God. Moses was told, it's okay, only by a mighty hand will you be delivered. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, then you will come out. So maybe Moses is going to get it all right. 
And we'd be wrong to think that. Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Pharaoh's strategy is working to demoralize the people of God and to discredit Moses. And we see that this great expectation of deliverance is being met with bitter disappointment. And it kind of, the point of this passage, I think, the way it functions, and I'm going to apply it in a moment, but the way it functions is to kind of set our expectations and to kind of give us a picture of what this could look like. Because unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. Douglas Stewart summarizes it well like this. Surely this relatively detailed account of the increased workload and the suffering it engendered makes a principal point. God's people must not assume that carrying out his commands will increase their own comfort. Of course, Moses had been forewarned that Pharaoh would be resistant, but the severity and breadth of the suffering his resistance would cause uh, would cause the Israelites was not explicitly stated. It is likely that Moses, Aaron, the Israelite foreman, and the Israelites in general were caught unprepared for a punitive workload increase. It's quite a long chapter, actually. If you think about all that happens in the story of Exodus, why does Moses devote so much time to describing this narrative, this portion? I think it's this, what I said earlier. Following our sovereign God is harder than expected. Even though God had forewarned and prepared them, when the rubber heats the road and the difficult obedience comes, it's harder than expected. So that's point one, harder than they expected. Now we move to point two, harder than we expected. You see, we live post-Exodus. In fact, we live even better. We live post-cross. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as the, the perfect liberator of God's people that he came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And on the cross, he defeats Satan. He defeats sin. He defeats death. And we enter into that victory. We sung about the glorious day of his resurrection. We enter into that victory. We live in the day of the Lord as we await his return. Yet, isn't it true that following our sovereign God is harder than expected? Where is it harder for you than expected? Where do you say, you know, I'm following the Lord, but I didn't realize it would be this hard? Perhaps for you, it's in your singleness and, and the daily reality of that feeling of being alone or looking ahead to a lifelong of celibacy. I didn't realize it would be this hard. Perhaps it's in your family. 
And you, because you follow Christ, you are now looked upon with shame. And at first, when, when you bowed the knee to the Lord and you, and you repented and you believed, you were excited about the new life that you were going to get. But the weekly and yearly reality that your parents are disappointed in you because of your decision is harder than you expected. Perhaps it's your daily and constant battle with some form of sin. You know that death has been defeated, sin has been defeated, but you wake up and you face the same temptations. And you want to live for the Lord and you want to walk in His ways and in His steps, but you seem to fall into the same trap time and time again. Sometimes it feels like it'd be just easier just to stop following Christ and just give in to your desire. But you know that that's wrong and so you fight and you fight and you fight, but the fight is harder than expected. There are many, many, many areas, I'm not going to go through them all, where living out the Christian life, following our sovereign God into the difficult obediences He called us into, are harder than expected. So what do you do? What does this passage teach us about what we're meant to do when it's harder than expected? I've got three application points to go through. When we're not, I'm not going to rush through these, but we've got three things that I think this passage can teach us about how to live in the difficult obedience that God has called you to when it's harder than you expect. You see, uh, if you turn outside the Scriptures, you might find different messages in the world. This sort of vague karma, like if you do good, good will come around. So just hold out that if you keep being a good person in the difficult times, things will change. Or that positive psychology message of, you know, just be good and positive and have a good outlook and every cloud has a silver lining. It'll be good. Like, we, we, you're kind of shallow. But even in the church, this mentality of just kind of, it'll be fine has seeped in. I was listening to a popular Christian song. I won't name the artist. Um, and I was listening to it and it actually saddened me because I think it's such a lie. Uh, but the, the song goes like this. I know breakthrough is coming. By faith, I see a miracle. My God made me a promise and it won't stop now. Your presence is an open door. We want you, Lord, like never before. Your presence is an open door. The point being that like when you face trial and difficulty in your Christian life, your response is meant to be with faith and anticipation, breakthrough is coming. I know that if I keep following him and trusting him, breakthrough is coming. That's what that song is saying, that God's presence is like an open door. He just breaks through all your problems, breaks through the difficulty, breaks through your sin, breaks through any shame, breaks through any problem. But the reality is, is that not, is not what God promises you. God brought the Israelites into this position with Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and he's going to make them wait through 10 plagues before they have deliverance. Our sovereign God leads us into circumstances for His will and for the maximal display of His glory. And some vague promise that God's going to just break through tomorrow because you had enough faith is not God's promise to you. So what do we do? 
What do we do in our suffering, in our sin, in our walk with Jesus when it's harder than expected? Firstly, don't be surprised. I believe this narrative is here because Moses wrote it for future generations of God's people to see that when God calls you to something, it's harder than you expect. Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. And when that difficult obedience actually comes, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. He is the sovereign one and he has called you into that calling. Whether it be your marriage or your singleness or your job at this present time or a relationship breakdown or a family shame or a struggle with sin. He's called you into that and he's called you how to live. So don't be surprised when it's harder than you expect. This theme is picked up in First Peter, well that's how Americans say it, 1 Peter, wait what do we say? 1 Peter 4.12 or 1 Peter 4.12? 1 Peter 4.12, okay 1 Peter 4.12, sorry. I've just been in America too long. 1 Peter 4.12 says this. I love these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If following Christ is harder than you thought, it's not harder than he thought it would be for you. He planned it. He called you to it. In fact, if you flick through the stories and pages of Scripture, you will meet many men and women who went through their entire life and never had breakthrough. The prophet Isaiah was called to preach to a people and they would never turn in his lifetime. Same with the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel in Babylon. Jesus Christ, our Saviour, was crucified. The Apostle Paul, harassed, beaten, driven, eventually killed. Same with Peter and the other ten disciples. They all died for their faith. We join a long line of brothers and sisters who in their living out of following Jesus Christ, they never saw breakthrough. They never just kicked through their problems. They had to suffer day in, day out. Like the Israelites in their slavery, in the brick-making, it can be the same for us. That book title, What Did You Expect? What did you expect when you signed up to following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Jesus actually set our expectations. Mark 8, 34 to 35, Jesus says this, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Sometimes I forget, and perhaps you do as well, that this reality is actually true. That following Jesus Christ is cross-bearing. What's a cross? A big, heavy instrument of death. Sometimes we can forget and lose the expectation that our Christian life will actually be cross-bearing. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote this. I got a long quote from him. There are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers on earth. And then he, he paints this picture as he preaches on this text. Cast your mind's eye, your mind's eye can see that the procession yonder, sorry for the language, notice it carefully. At the head of it, there walks one whom we rightly call Master and Lord. You may know him by the prints of the nails in his hands and feet. I observe that he carries a cross, and that is a very heavy one. Do you see the long line following him? They are all those of whom the world was not worthy. That line has been continued even to this day and will be continued until the present dispensation shall close. As you watch these different followers of Christ in the procession, one thing will strike you, that however much they differ, in some respects, they are all alike in one thing. Every one of them carries a cross. There is no exception to this rule. From master down to the last disciple, it is a procession of cross bearers. The day will come where there will be a transformation scene. And you will see all these cross bearers transformed into crown wearers. But rest assured that the old motto, no cross, no crown, is certainly true. And those who refuse to carry the cross after Christ on earth shall never be permitted to wear the crown with, wherein the land that is beyond the stars. Brothers and sisters, that's our calling. We follow a cross-bearing Savior and we follow as fellow cross-bearers. We need that expectation. We need to be reminded that following our sovereign God may result in harsh and bitter circumstances. C.J. Mahaney, the founder of Sovereign Grace, uh, he would teach us a few courses at the Pastors College when I was there in Louisville, and he would often look at us. He's a very intense guy. But he would often look at us and say, prepare your church for suffering. And, you know, we're in this nice classroom, probably eating donuts and Starbucks. And it kind of seems like, really? You know, we have these beautiful coffee machines in this great venue. Prepare your church for suffering. Christianity is not a hobby. I don't know what you thought when you joined, but, you know, hobbies we do for our relaxation, to express our creativity and our passions. Um, when I was in the U.S., I was in West Virginia, and one of our lecturers, a guy called Josh Blunt, I think this is the lamest thing ever, but his hobby is bird watching, and he would call himself a birder, okay, that's, you know, and total nerd, total thing, but you know what, actually, when I, I went to his house, and I started doing it with him, it was more enjoyable than I thought, it actually brought a bit of meaning and significance, we're going for a walk, and they're like, oh, there, and put but no bird watcher is going to sacrifice their life for their hobby. Christianity is markedly different from a hobby. This isn't just a little game we play on a Sunday morning, a bit of an inspirational pep talk. We're called to carry our cross. We're called to suffer. Brothers and sisters, are you prepared for that? 
Do you expect that hardship, suffering, pain, shame, loss, and sacrifice will definitely accompany you as you follow our sovereign God? This text is here to show that even with great promises of deliverance, the time between deliverance and promise can be a time of hardship. And so Moses writes this for us, even now through the Holy Spirit. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. So what do you do when following our sovereign God is harder than expected? Do not be surprised. Secondly, complain. We actually see in this passage quite a good model. I sort of made it a bit negative when I read it out earlier. But what do you do when following our sovereign God is harder than expected? The second point of this passage is we are to complain to God and not about him. Did you notice the difference between Moses and the Israelite foreman? The Israelite foreman, when the suffering and hardship came, they complained to Pharaoh. They went to their old master. They complained to him. And sought deliverance from him. And Moses, what does he do? In verse 22, you see, he complains to God. Now, some of those words are a bit jarring. You know, I don't know. I haven't actually been in a circumstance as harsh as that to feel those words. But let me read them again from Moses. They're here for our example. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Striking words. They seem almost unrighteous and wrong. But I believe they're actually here for those of us who are in the grip of pain and suffering. To give you an example that you are meant to take your pain and suffering and complain, careful with your words, but how you dress a holy God, but complain to God. This is a pattern found throughout all of Scripture, in fact. Um, The Psalms, a lot of the Psalms include these bold complaints to the Lord. I want to share one with you to show you that it's, you know, it's true. You can actually do this. Look at Psalm 13. It'll be on the screen. It's a great psalm. In fact, if you want to hear an incredible sermon on it, Jeff Perswell on the Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville has a great sermon on this psalm. He says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? They're raw and honest words to God. And God's not surprised. He already knows what's going on in your heart. So you might as well talk to him about it rather than talking to other people about him. In fact, the pattern in Scripture is quite stark. When the people of God complain about God and not to him, He kills them. So don't do that. Um, 
if, if, if you read the book of Numbers, it happens multiple times. The people complain to Moses about God and like, why can't we go back? Why can't we go back to Egypt? And then God sends fiery serpents or God sends an earthquake and God sends poison and they all die. And so don't complain about God to people. Complain to God about your circumstance. And you can find refuge and strength in the sovereign one who called you into that circumstance. So what do you do? I know it sounds counterintuitive, but what do you do when following our sovereign God is harder than you expected? Complain to God. Use the Psalms as your model. Use the complaint in Lamentations as your model. Turn to Job at the end and see the end game. But you can come to the Lord. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend in life group that everything's all fine, that, you know, there'll be something good that's going to happen soon, breakthrough's coming, my God's an open door. No, you don't have to pretend. You be real with him. And if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, you see how the Lord responds. It's not part of our text, but I just want to show you this. In verse, chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The Lord takes Moses' complaint and re-engages with him and promises him that deliverance is coming, but he will still have to wait. Thirdly and finally, what do you do when following our sovereign God is harder than you expected? When you look at your bank balance and you realize, if I didn't tithe I could have bought a house or when you aren't promoted because you're the whistleblower who says actually that's tax evasion or you lose a friend at high school because you stop going out partying and drinking with them because you realize that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and he's called you to live a holy life what do you do Third thing and finally, keep following no matter what. You see, Israel turned to Pharaoh. Moses turned to the Lord. Where will you turn? Where are you turning right now? You see, Moses complained to the Lord. We've already seen that. But he comes to the Lord and seeks the Lord's hand in what's going to happen. He knows that God is in control. He knows that his only hope of getting through the slavery and the punishment and the burden, the sacrifice and the difficult obedience is if he turns to the Lord. Do you know him as that delivering God? Are you turning to him? As you bear your cross, though, we need to be reminded that there's a difference between our suffering and his suffering. You see, we bear a cross, but we will never bear its curse. Charles Spurgeon said this, Brethren and sisters, you who are cross bearers this morning, I would remind you for your comfort that you have to bear the cross, but not the curse. Your Lord endured both cross and curse. But to you, there is not so much as a drop of divine anger in all that you are suffering. 
There may be much vinegar, but no venom. There may be anguish, but there is no anger. Keep following, my brothers and sisters. As the difficult obedience comes and the hardship comes and the burden comes like it did for the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, you need to know it's not punishment. The Lord is not punishing you. He poured out His wrath on His Son. He, Jesus Christ, bore the curse for your sin. Yes, we bear a cross. Yes, following Jesus will lead to sacrifice and hardship. But it is never punishment, for it has been totally laid upon our Savior. Don't believe the lie that you are being punished for your sin. The Lord disciplines us as children. Hebrews 12 tells us that. But He doesn't punish us because He has no anger towards you at all. If you're in Christ, He has only affection, only love, only steadfast mercy that will chase you down. We may bear the cross, but we will never bear its curse. But what do you do if you're not really resonating with this sermon because you aren't really experiencing any hardship? You think, oh, well, you know, like I'm a Christian and my life's pretty, pretty fine. Pretty fine. Like there's some sacrifice. Like I'm here. I could be, well, I couldn't be at the beach, but I could be at home in my Ugg boots and having a hot chocolate. Like there's some sacrifice. Or perhaps, you know, you look ahead and you're like, I, I don't really resonate with, you know, this idea of suffering and sacrifice for the Lord. And let me, let me encourage you first. It could be that you are like the Apostle Paul, um, who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Perhaps you are so sanctified, uh, you are so you know, far in your walk, that as you actually go through suffering, and I know many in this church, I'm not making a trite point, genuinely many people in this church experience hardship, but they, they experience it as light and momentary affliction. Praise God, that's God's grace in your life. You don't have to walk around like a martyr pretending it's hurting you more than it is. God's grace is sufficient for you to be able to see its light and momentary affliction. Praise God. But for some of us, perhaps, we need to ask the question, am I really following him? You see, the hardship was intensified for Israel because Moses obeyed the Lord. He went to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. The hardship came because Moses followed his sovereign God and did what he commanded. The question, perhaps for you, if you're experiencing no hardship, no persecution, no suffering, no loss, no burden of following Christ, you feel no cross on your back, you need to maybe ask the question, am I really following him? 2 Timothy says this in chapter 3, Paul says to his little Mate Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. The suffering and hardship that the Israelites experience may not correspond closely to our reality. In fact, the suffering and hardship that our brothers and sisters experience overseas for the sake of Jesus Christ may not correspond to our reality, but there still should be hardship in your following of Christ. For we are called to bear a cross. So in summary, the people of God were called to a difficult obedience. They actually followed through and they went to Pharaoh and things got worse. Sometimes following God makes things go worse rather than better. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I can't promise you that like we're just going to break through your life and every you know, stronghold's going to be broken. Everything's going to be great. And, you know, following Jesus is like the, the, the hole in your heart that you never knew you needed. And it's all going to be really good. In fact, Jesus always said to his followers, it's going to be harder than you expect. Take up your cross. But I implore you, if you are outside of Christ today, know that bearing your cross today will result in a crown in the future. But if you take the world today, it will result in punishment in the future. And for those of us who are in Christ, we've taken up our cross. Know, know this. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that it's harder than you thought. Complain to the Lord when it's harder than you thought. And never give up, no matter what. No matter what sacrifice, hardship, or perhaps even harsh persecution may come. Unrealistic expectations always result in disappointment. Following our sovereign God is harder than expected. But our sovereign God is a God of mercy and grace. And he will meet you every step of the way. Pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I pray and ask that we, your little sheep who go through much in this life, that we would trust in you no matter what, that we would turn to you no matter what, that as we bear our cross and bear the burden of following you in this life, you may give us the grace to take another step. You may give us the grace to continue in those difficult obediences no matter what. May you help us as a church to band together, to spur one another on as long as it's called today. Lord, may we help each other to fight sin. May we comfort and love one another in our times of suffering, grief, and sadness. Lord, may you carry us on wings of eagles. May you help us to run and not grow weary, to walk and not grow faint. God, you're our only hope. We turn to you and ask that you would give us the grace to follow you no matter what. And Lord Jesus, our precious Lord, we thank you that you bore our curse so that we never have to.
so that none of this is, is punishment. None of this is hatred or displeasure or wrath from you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to fix our eyes fully upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to see that you are better than this world. And you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.